0: What are you wearing to rowing? So generally, I think 80% of the time, people will row naked. Completely Um, naked? Completely naked, yeah.
1: Um, so, Mr. Stuart Morton, welcome. Yeah. You alright, how are you doing? Very good, thank you. How are you? <laughs> good. Fantastic. Yeah. So we've known each other for nearly a year now, um, mm-hmm. through Reebok Tyneside, and a few other bits and pieces as well, yeah. and since I met you, you've had a an idea that I think is probably one of the, the maddest things that I've ever heard. It's the sort of, sort of story that you hear about in the news, but you never actually know anyone who's going to go ahead and do it, so... I guess in short, what what's your next three months going to look like? What are you doing?
0: Um, I'm going to row a wooden rowing boat from Portugal to Venezuela, um, which has actually never been done before by anybody solo. It's been done by a team of five guys before, um, but never done by someone on the own. So it'll be like a world's first. And all so that you're rowing stuff. across the Atlantic Ocean? Yeah. On your own? Yeah. From mainland Europe to mainland South America, which is important because... There's a race that exists where people go from the Canary Islands to the Caribbean. So it, it takes in sort of 80% of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh-huh. Um, and it's, long story short, it's 20 grand to enter. Um, and wow. there's more kudos attached to go from mainland Europe to mainland South America. Right. It's about a 1,000 miles longer uh-huh. than the, the race. Um, so that's the reason for, for choosing that. <clears throat> and then also the fact that no one's ever done it before. So wow. there's not many things... Left that no one's ever done yeah, before there's not in this many, world, uh, stuff, especially in exploration and stuff, and adventures. Um, so it was one of those like last things to grab, and it just sort of built as it, you know, as it evolved, it sort of built into what it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, the initial intention was to just row the Atlantic. Um, and is that in, in any way possible?
1: Say again. In any way possible, yeah, from just, whatever bit to whatever bit. Yeah, sort of and
0: being kind of naive to it, I was just like, well. I want to row the Atlantic, what's the most common form of doing that? And then I'll, I'll try that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then looking into it and peeling back the layers, you sort of figure out what's on offer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then through a bit of sort of bucking against the rules and sort of not wanting to conform, mm-hmm. um, I ended up getting my own my own route. So basically, there's this company called Atlantic Campaigns mm-hmm. who run the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. And it's the sort of... Um, the standard bearer, if you like, an ocean rowing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's £20,000 to enter that race. Mm-hmm. Is that solo as well? Uh, yeah. They, they take on solo entries, pairs, threes, fours. Um, I think they might have done a five, but I think four is actually the highest they do. Um, and basically, I looked at what you get for the twenty grand. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not putting it down at all. It's a fantastic organisation that does great things, but... For someone that doesn't come from a particular background, mm-hmm. 20 grand is like quite a bit of cash just to find to enter a race, especially when you spend upwards of 70 grand mm-hmm. to buy the boat and the kit and all the stuff that you need. Yeah. Um, so, I, I basically, about seven years ago, um, I'll, I'll set the scene, so about seven Bring years ago. Bring yourself in a little bit for me, man, just a little bit yeah. closer, yeah, that's um, I was, thank you. it's I was living in London, uh, working in private security, um, and basically got invited to a dinner party um, and one of the girls at the dinner party was a film director. Right. So I'd asked if she'd worked on anything recently, and she'd just finished a film on a guy called Charlie Picture Right. Um, who'd rode the Atlantic on his own mm-hmm. um, independently. So I watched that film and was sort of transfixed by it. Everyone else at the dinner party didn't really want to, you know, think about doing that. Yeah. Um, I think that was the only but guy. I don't think there's anyone that really thinks to, about doing that, right? Yeah. Like I yeah. say, it's
1: the sort of thing that you hear other people talk about, but that.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It just well, doesn't. For me, that's exactly how it was. So, but it, you know, like most things, the curiosity got the better of me, and I sort of, I emailed Charlie um, to find out the ins and outs of Ocean Row and how someone goes about that, um, planning that sort of thing. Um, so he sent me all the links to the Talisker Race, and through that, I figured out how much it was going to cost and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I had set aside a bit of time to save for it, mm-hmm. um, and then, like I said, in, in researching more about ocean rowing i came across other people that done independent rows right and so it's a whole d-
1: community right yeah like, it's huge once you yeah. sort of
0: scratch the li- like the layers away absolutely over um, the last over the last year just seeing stuff that you like on instagram yeah. there's guys yeah. rowing all over the place so. yeah um and it's almost like it's like when people get into training like they've never been exposed to like gym life before mm-hmm. and then as soon as this they start community sort of, just yeah. explodes and they pick up know? all the the lingo and all that sort of stuff so mm. It's a, definitely like a subculture that people pick up on. And ocean road is that way as well. But more people have climbed Everest than have rode the Atlantic. Wow. Um, and then again, if you look at the Pacific or the Indian Ocean, the numbers are even smaller again. So that's
1: about 1,000 and a bit, 1,500, is it? Maybe. At the growing? moment,
0: I think the figure stands at about 500. Yeah. But the Talisker race, um, it's grown in popularity. So this year, um, the race has actually happened as we speak. Um, and I think there's 75 people in the so race. It's getting exponential. Yeah, route? so maybe 50 but... people will complete it. Mm-hmm. There's already been some dropouts and stuff. No way. Um, yeah, no. a couple of rescues and this, that, and the other. Wow. So. And so that's quite humbling to see I've from seen. my position. Like I'm setting <laughs> off in three weeks and I'm seeing yeah. people giving up. But as well as that, there's a guy called Damian Brown who's a former rugby player, mm-hmm. and he's basically setting an example of of how to tackle an ocean road. Like, um, he's got the former Yeah. And, uh, and he thinks like kind of the way I like to think about things. So if you take an event or something that happens to you in your life, you can mm. react to it one of two ways, but that doesn't change the the fact that that event has occurred. Mm-hmm. So you can lose your temper or you can laugh it off, mm-hmm. but the event's still there to deal with. So it doesn't really matter how you react to something. You're there and you've got to get on with it. Mm-hmm. But there's a few, you know, and the time's gone by, there are people that have sort of, for whatever reason, withdrawn from the race and, mm-hmm. um, and I'm I'm starting to to change my like initial reaction to that. Like my initial reaction on hearing that sort of news would be that oh they couldn't hack it and mm-hmm. it wasn't for them and all this sort of stuff. But a few of them have raised safety concerns that they perhaps didn't think about in the lead up to the row. Uh-huh. And there's so much that goes into the planning mm-hmm. that I totally understand that from their position they might have got to a point where they hadn't really considered what they were getting themselves into. Yeah, I know that sounds daft because it's rowing an ocean, but. I think it's easy to get caught up in the hype and sort of find yourself in a position you don't really you want to be You weren't prepared for. Yeah. So, so tell us about your background. What's, what's, your, what's your background? Um, so basically, I, I grew up in a really like sort of transient lifestyle. So my father was in the armed forces. Mm-hmm. Um, I was born in Germany and then ended up living all over the place. Um, and then when I was 18, I joined the Marines on a dare. Um, did that oh, for about Yeah So basically there was a, a TV programme <laughs> oh on God. While we are at school And everyone was talking about this TV programme And sort of Would they fancy doing it And all that sort of stuff And again Another situation where I think I was the only person that wanted to Yeah Um. And then later that day I was stood in the queue for some food at school And uh, I overheard two lads Talking about the fact that I wanted to give it a go Right and one and how, of, old, I, how old are you? I was like 17 or 18 Right okay Um, so it's like A-levels and then I overheard someone saying they didn't think I could do it and not being sort of that academically minded Mm -hmm. and not knowing what I wanted to do if I got to university and all that sort of stuff I just decided to run it by an old man first and say I'm going to drop out of school and join the Marines, what do you think? and he was like, yeah, go for it
1: I guess with his background that would have
0: been yeah, so did that um, left the Marines, got into private security uh, did that for a few years um, and yeah, just I think you can tell from that background, I've always been a fan of like challenges and figuring out who I am and how I react to like stressful environments Mm -hmm. and sort of extreme situations. Um, And I just feel like it's been a few years since that's happened. So the road's sort of coming at a good time now. Mm -hmm. Um, So this has been a concept in your mind for about seven years? Yeah, I think six or seven years. It's either 2010 or 11. I watched that that video at the dinner party. And since then it's just sort of evolved. But obviously with the amount of money involved... Um, and obviously with the age I was, like buying houses and, you know, getting a car and all that stuff. Getting yourself stuff, settled, yeah. 70 grand is like hard to come by when you're doing all that stuff. Seven, 70,000 pounds is the cost. I've probably spent so far about 70,000. I say so far because there's still more stuff to get. For sure. Yeah. So it's just, it's little things. Like there's probably a kit list with two or 300 items on that you need to do the row. Wow. And most of the items cost a couple of hundred quid. Mm-hmm. So you can, you know, gather from that how much stuff And in, in amongst that is a bulk. In amongst that a boat. A ve- Is it a yeah. vessel? Is it a boat? Either or. Uh-huh. Like, it's a rowing boat or a vessel. Because they're the things... I think because of the stuff attached to it, it gets called a vessel. Because it's uh-huh. got, like, a radio and a GPS. And I all got that. you. It's basically a wooden rowing boat with a, a cabin <laughs> sleeping. Oh, in. my God. So it's pretty good. So you've got... You've gone through the Marines. You've gone through your
1: private security. You've come out the other side now. Yeah. Um, I've seen you just over the last year. I've seen you run coast to coast of Hadrian's Wall.
0: Yeah, that was... Um, so that... That wasn't really a big thing for us. I know that, that sounds really big-headed, and it's not meant to sound that way at it was all. It's the really. equivalent
1: of somewhere in the region of three
0: marathons back-to-back in 24 exactly hours. Well, it's actually three 28-mile runs back-to-back. So I'll set the scene again. Josh Rose and I did a run in November, just off the cuff, to see how like fit we thought we were. And it was a trail run in Wooler, which was 28 miles. Uh-huh. And then we literally finished it, and 10 minutes afterwards we are talking about people that do ultra marathons and stuff like that. And Which I just, is 100. 100 no. I think ultra is anything over a marathon, to be is honest. It? Yeah. Oh, okay. So people do a 50K and call it an ultra. Okay. Or they'll do a 100K and call it an ultra whatever. Yeah. Um, so Josh and I were basically saying, do you reckon you could do that back to back? And I was like, oh, I don't know. And then just off sort of Googling and flying around Facebook and stuff, I found two guys that had ran Hadrian's Wall and it was 84 miles. And it just jumped into my head that that's pretty much there back again and there again mm-hmm. of the run we just did yeah. which was the biggest distance either of us ever had, had ever done mm-hmm. I think up to that point um, and only 10 minutes after it you were already looking for the yeah so life. I just jokingly said to him what do you reckon about doing this and he was like yeah that sounds pretty good and then I, I've always been a fan of if you tell people about it then it's happening yeah so I think we posted it on Instagram that day um and then just sort of train towards it. That external accountability Um, coming in a little bit there. Yeah, and it's just sort of like, I think it's good to test yourself now and again on stuff that you don't know you might be able to do. Otherwise, it isn't a challenge. Too many people these days do like a marathon, which, no offence to anyone that's proud of what they've done, but it's not hard to run 26 miles Mm -hmm. no matter what your background is. But even if the
1: training, I suppose with the training for a marathon, I've seen some of the training protocols and people are working up towards 20 miles, like 10 and 20 mile runs beforehand. Unless something goes wrong, the, the race is already—you've already run it, which is exactly, which is, yeah. which is the my point, point of the training, right? Yeah. The point of the training is that you should be able to complete the run comfortably. Yeah. But I think there's a difference in trying to complete an event which you've prepared for and trying to test yourself in a way that you can only prepare up to as well as you can do for. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And I think
0: also if you apply a time frame to the marathon, then it becomes a challenge. Yeah. But for most people, they just want to do it, and yeah. it's more possible than people think it is. Yeah. And I think there's loads of stuff in life that's like that. It's way more possible than you think. You just never, you haven't tried it before. Mm-hmm. And the run, the Hadrian's Wall run was definitely that. Like, in February, we failed it. Well, I failed it because mm-hmm. I got a shin, sp- uh, uh, what do you call it? A stress fracture in my shin. Right. Um, so that stopped us at about the 65 mile point. Um, which is still. Which is a long way. Absolutely. But it's not just exactly double two yeah. marathons. And, um... So that was that. But then because of the kind of people Josh and I are, we were like, well, we've got to go back and finish it. I so think that day, the Instagram post that you put up... It was the day I think. Yeah, the, yeah,
1: upon announcing that it hadn't happened, yeah, the, pretty much straight it was after was the know. announcement, like we're coming yeah. back for you, so to speak.
0: And the date was good because it was... Uh, the rerun was in August, just gone. Um, and it basically, for me, was more of a test of like where I was physically and mentally. Because it... It was a tough test in that like, you had to apply a bit of mental fortitude to, to get through it because it's a long way to run. Mm-hmm. Um, most people aren't happy driving that distance, but to run it, we set off at like 4 in the morning and finished at 10 at night. And let's like coast to coast of the country. So yeah. it was quite a deal. Um, but also, for me, it was good because on the row, I'm probably going to be working out for up to 18 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And the run took around about the same time. Right. So the thought of getting up the next day and doing that all over again... It was more preparation than I you gave it credit idea. for because yeah. I, I I could turn around and go well, it's possible, but it's going to be bloody hard. Yeah. And to string a hundred days like that together, it's yeah. really going to be the test. So, so
1: going back to the role, hmm. you've you've got your prep, you've started to get towards it. So I mean, what's the next step in terms of you've you've started to think about the idea? Where do you go from there? You need to find a route. You need to find someone with specialist information. That can- yeah,
0: that, exactly that. It's sort of it's like most ideas that you know, you don't think you're going to be able to achieve. It just, as soon as you start on the road, it just starts to evolve. Mm -hmm. And I've never really been someone that like plans everything to an absolute T and then goes and executes it. Mm -hmm. I sort of, I train myself up to a point where I think I've got all the skills I need to, you know, be able to take on the challenge, Mm -hmm. which involves the whole planning phase as well. Yeah. Um, And then I'll just react to the situations as they they come. Yeah. Um, And as I'm going down that road. So basically, I, like I said, I emailed the guy, Charlie Pitcher, found out about costs and, you know, required courses and like the navigation that you need to like pick up and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then just slowly started going about doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the real sort of the impetus was like injected into the, the project back in 2016. Right. Because a team of five guys had completed that route that I was on about and mm-hmm. three of them were friends of mine from the Marines. Right, no way. Yeah, so I, I called one of them up and just said, look, what's what's the score with this? How did you go about planning it? And he said, we just picked the route and did it. Mm-hmm. So I basically, the same sketch as the run, I told everyone I was doing it and it kind of like forces you into making it happen then. For sure. And also picking a date was important because um, it's something to work toward and it's something that like you're then accountable for because people know you're Like, it's January, Stu Morton's going to be going off on his row. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Parkinson's law, the work expands to fill the time
1: that's given for it. And if you just, at some point in the future, it would be five years, ten years, and then before you know it, you can't do it anymore. Exactly. So, no, that's... I mean, so moving on to the actual row itself, am I right in thinking I read that it's 1.5 million oar strokes?
0: Around that, yeah. I mean, it all depends on, like, the distance it takes me, but as a rule, it's going to be about... One and a half million off strokes, yeah.
1: Which just sounds like yeah, the sort of thing that would take it to space or do you know what I mean? Yeah. million millions of anything. Yeah, millions of repetitions of anything just sounds absolutely insane.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's nuts. There's, it's one of those weird things. Like the closer you get to it and the more people I know that have actually done the row, the more you realise that it's it's everything you think it's gonna be. It's like incredibly monotonous and boring <laughs> and testing and all this and you can have music and sort of films to keep you company and everything, but yeah. at the end of the day, there's there's no getting away from the fact that you've just got got to get on the oars and pull. Mm-hmm. And also, it's so much more different to anything I've done before. Where on the run that Josh and I did, yeah. if we failed that, there was like our friend Ben was driving a car next to us, yeah, so we could jump in or yeah. we could like get our iPhones out and call someone and yeah. they come pick us up. But this is not like. So that. what's the support structure that you've got there's no support it's completely unsupported um an absolute emergency i can set off one of the many beacons that i've got on board mm-hmm. um and through the different coastal agencies around the world they'll sort of try and affect the rescue mm-hmm. the, the majority of the time these rescues are from passing ships because there's quite a few shipping lanes on my route okay so um there is the opportunity to be rescued but that's if you're in a an emergency situation Yeah. Um, it wouldn't be looked upon very well if you set off your beacon just because you're a bit tired yeah, or, or something though. like yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. When you're feeling a bit sorry for yourself. Um, and then, failing that, there's a life raft, a grab bag of emergency kit, and then the current to take me to the Caribbean. Bloody which hell! Which will take probably about 150 days, maybe. Okay.
2: Um,
0: but someone's done I mean, that. That's, last, that's
1: definitely last resort. Yeah, <laughs> it's it last resort, but it is a resort. Yeah, so for sure. You've got I, to, I guess you've, to, you've got to have. Planning for every eventuality, like you say, there's a lot of things that could occur that you wouldn't know. Yeah. So, when do you set off? What time of day and what date? And uh, well, it's all weather dependent.
0: So, right. you set like a general date that you're aiming at, which for me is the 18th of January. Mm-hmm. Um, for no other reason, I just plucked it out of the air. Yep. Um, and then, through the, the weather routing guy, um, my friend Foxy, we're just going to look at the weather around that week and see if it's a viable mm-hmm. option. But generally, January's a good
1: time, right? Yeah. Because so the, of something the, going on with currents. Yeah, what?
0: the Talisker race sets off in December um, and I'm going to set off in January basically for the same reason that the trade winds come from Africa towards South America. Right. Um, they're at the strongest point at that time of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the hurricane season stops in around November, December time. So if you set off, obviously after the hurricane season, it's going to be quite few do not want to be in the favors. hurricane season, yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: So you're going to get an assist with the wind, right?
0: Uh, yeah at least a little bit yeah so there's um not to get too much into it but there's two classes of boats there's the pure class and the concept class um the concept class is basically like the newest design which is an incredible design and not to sound like i'm sort of like hating on it um it is a phenomenally designed bit of kit and the people that make them run are definitely the best boat builders out there Mm -hmm. But it's widely known that they get huge wind assistance because they're designed for that. Yeah. So the entrance to the cabin is at the front of the boat, for the main cabin, mm-hmm. whereas mine's at the back of the boat. Yeah. So if, as the wind comes over the back of the boat, mm-hmm. it doesn't hit anything yeah. on mine. It just drifts off into the yeah. ocean. Whereas it's a flat surface Yeah. On yeah. So it acts like a sail. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, Rana could set these blistering fast paces across the ocean. Any other the world records that held... Are currently held by rank boats. So, is there now two classes of world record? Yeah. So Guinness were like, "Well, that's not fair. Now we have to have two classes." So I looked at who holds the record for my row, and yeah. it's an old-fashioned pure class boat. Right. So I only thought it's fair if I'm going to try and beat the, like the record that already stands. Yeah. Then I've got to do it. in a pure the class route boat. you've been uh,
1: the, so the route that you're doing has never been done before? No. And that would so irrelevant of which side it was in, which boat you were in. Who yeah. are you going to be?
0: Well, specifically for country to country, I'll be the first person. Yep. But for continent to continent, yep. someone's done it before. Okay. Um, and the guy's called Sienhoff, a Norwegian, that said it in 96 days. Right. Um, so if, if I beat 96 days, I get the record, mm-hmm. as well as being the first person to go from Portugal to Venezuela. And the first British person and all those sort of yeah, other Yeah, all, all the sub ones yeah, as well. Yeah, first man. <laughs> and all that of <laughs> so that's quite good. I mean, it's just...
1: It just boggles the mind really to sort of think about this sort of stuff. Like I can't I can't imagine what the experience is gonna be like to go across. So you I mean, what's the estimated time? You hopefully setting off January eighteenth. Is yeah. it well, a look, morning a morning thing? Is it the sort of thing where you're gonna be able to have anyone to see you off other than a support crew? Like, yeah.
0: So um Foxy uh the weather routing guy, he's gonna come out to Portugal with me. Mm-hmm. And then my friend Pierre is gonna help me drive the boat down. Mm-hmm. Um and then those two Basically, I want as little time as possible in the marina in Portugal. Right? Why is that? Just like as a mental thing, I think it's way better to like say goodbyes to everyone at home. Yeah. Drive down, put the boat in water, jump in. Your journey itself. almost begins as you
1: set off in the car for exactly, America, yeah. from exactly yeah the UK. Yeah,
0: and also, you know, like I said, because we're guessing the weather and all that sort of stuff, you don't want to miss your weather window. Mm-hmm. So if I dilly dally when I get down there, for sure, a two day like delay might end up being a four week delay, which I can't really afford. Mm. So for me, I just want to get the boat in the water and, and set off. Plus, it isn't like a challenge that I've ended up doing that I don't want to do. Like I've been this like a dream of mine for six or seven years. So I'm like champing it a bit to get out there and test myself and all that sort of good stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think like the solitude something I'm going to enjoy. Like the the adventure side of it, the, you know, putting yourself at the mercy of something you can't control isn't something people do very much these days. Absolutely not. Um, and I think that's where the test comes from is that I, I'm not in control of my environment and I can only react to it. Mm-hmm. So it's much the same as like when we're in operations in the Marines, like it's a good test of who you are and what you're about, especially in this world where people are so bothered about sort of money and status and celebrity and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like that stuff doesn't really impress me. I like any idols I have, of, you know, they've got the work done and then they get applauded for it mm-hmm. rather than telling people what they're going to do and expecting some sort of for sure. Well, I mean, you know,
1: a lot of people I think would be primarily chasing the titles and the, the they want to do it the quickest, they want to do yeah. it the fastest, the best, and yeah, and, and get the most
0: renowned out of it. For but, me, they're bonuses. the The true test is the test itself. Yeah. Um. And if it takes me 120 days, yeah, I'm not really bothered. Mm-hmm. The The records like a nice to have for the sponsors and stuff like that. It's yeah. Something that they can sing about and say that they were involved with. Mm-hmm. But for me, I I don't really care about that. It's nice to know that you know, you've, you've earned something and you've achieved it because you outworked the other guy and all that sort of stuff. But for me, the, the big test is, can I deal with what's thrown at me? Like the conditions will probably be different to the other guys as well. Mm -hmm. And the distance is so vast that you can't do the exact same route anyway. Right. So the parameters of like, well, he did it in this time and he did it in that time. They're hard to sort of you know, there's create. no direct comparison, right? Yeah, and you can't create like that level playing field where it's like yeah. a football match where there's two goals in 90 minutes and off you go for sure. Um, so yeah, it's just it's a weird one because the records mean a lot in the build-up, you know, getting funding and sponsorship and all yeah. that. But it, when it comes down to it, like getting from A to B safely is mm-hmm. number one. Well, I think and that's what that's what grabs attention,
1: isn't it? Yeah, that this is potentially going to be a world record. Mm. Um, yeah, but as you say, that for you is below secondary
0: yeah um, it will be cool I mean like the the whole ego side of things it'd be nice to be the first person to have ever done anything because you, you'll yeah, never lose sure. that record absolutely um, whereas if you're obviously the fastest you're the fastest until someone beats you yeah until and, the next fastest yeah and with the way the, the uh, boats are going as well it'll come to a point where the pure class boats no longer, uh, are no longer built Yeah. or they're too old to be recycled mm-hmm. so it's only concept class boats so then it would be nice to be the last person to have done something and all that sort of for thing. For sure. um, But definitely I'm open to the thought of after the first one's done, maybe doing it again in a concept boat. or. Right. You know, but I've obviously got to do it first and see if yeah, I like get, it. Let's get the first one out And the then way get that out right here, right for sure. So you're going to set off January
1: 18th. And then I'm writing saying that you don't actually steer. Is that right? It's GPS that that does the, the majority of the steering in terms of direction for the yeah, rudder? Yeah,
0: so you can have what's called an auto helm um, and it basically attaches to the rudder and it's a, a digital steering device. Mm-hmm. So you type in your bearing to the GPS and then you can get it done automatically or you can sync it yourself as well. Mm-hmm. You'll put the bearing into the auto helm mm-hmm. and then it basically steers for you. Mm-hmm. And so you just get on and you just pull. Yeah, and you just pull. But if that breaks, you then go to foot steering or hand steering, oh my God. which is as bad as it sounds. Yeah, um, whilst, whilst also trying to... To pull your oars. Yeah, and you're constantly like readjusting adjusting it and sort of making sure you're on the right bearing. So you, have you set your course now? Do you know the yeah, exact so course yeah I, so I went through it with um, Foxy. um we sort of sat down the other week and spent about eight hours picking the, the course so um, you've only done it only done it recently. you yeah, I mean the, you've had a lot of good side yeah, of a I long of good knows that the am going from Portugal to Venezuela so <laughs> it's pretty obvious yeah. I just head west yeah. um, <laughs> but the intricacies of the sort of the out of the and of like, of breaking away from the land so mm-hmm. you, you can afford to get your head down without like drifting into anything Yeah. so the first sort of day will be the first week's going to be hell because you're, you're adjusting to everything um, it's the first week where you're like aware of what the routine is going to be like mm-hmm. it's the first week where your body's getting used to that workload um, all your hand like the blisters and stuff in your hands are going to form and all yep. that sort of thing like you can train them to a certain extent and like the nice comfort confines of a gym and what have you but yep when you actually get on it, you can't really train for an ocean row unless you're on the ocean. Yeah, for sure. So So you've you've
1: touched on it there. So I'm going to segue off. Yeah. Just take us through your training, take us through what the training has consisted of.
0: Um, I think that's always a hard question to answer because there's a, you know, chunk of society that trains all the time and they have goals outside of these big projects. Mm -hmm. So like I, I train most days and have done since I was 16 or 17. Um, but the row specific stuff, I knew I had to get fat, I knew I had to get strong, <laughs> and I knew I had to have a pretty good engine. Uh, luckily, I've had a good engine for a while, um, so that kind of took care of itself, yeah. and that run was like confirmation of that. Yeah. Um, and then about like getting fat? Getting fat's been really weird, really weird. <laughs> it's gone really well, um, but it's been really strange. Obviously, most people that train are training to the achieve exact opposite. a goal, the exact whether opposite. it be looking good or... Being nice when you're looking good when you're naked and all that sort of stuff. Um, And I've had to do the opposite of that. Yeah. I've had to eat for a purpose, which goes against everything that, like, I and people I stay with, like, stand for. So that's been really weird. But um, it's, it's doing, I'm getting better at it now because I know that it's going to, like, suit. It's getting better at being fat. Yeah. Well, I'm (laughs) getting better at putting the food in and not being that bothered by it because I know it's going to, like serve me well when the, the time comes but yeah no it is it's really weird and like how, about, to, how about strength so this will probably I'm going to guess that this will be the heaviest you've ever been yeah 112 kilos at the moment from 85 in August oh my god so that's quite a quite a game very sharp and it? it's not like you know obviously you can judge for yourself, but a lot of people have said that I'm carrying it pretty well like I don't look like I'm super fat absolutely yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that comes from the strength training that I've been doing so yeah. I've added bulk as well as fat. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely with my top off and stuff, I'd look flabby and I've got curves where I don't want them and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, working with Tim Briggs, who does We Dominate Nutrition, mm-hmm. we were like, well, the first, part, the first part, uh, part of getting fat is just eating more than you need to burn off. I can't, I can't believe that the yeah.
1: like how to get fat.doc yeah. has been emailed over exactly, at yeah. some point.
0: So we just overloaded on carbs and like eight. A, a diet where my body got all the nutrition it needed. Yeah. Like, so a lot of the stuff that Lauren cooks, I'll do the same as her. Yeah. And then on top of that, has been like pizzas and ice cream and chocolate and okay. whatever you want to do to get the calories up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then recently, maybe three or four weeks ago, we switched to like a keto diet. Okay. Um, so the idea is that my body now is going to be better at burning fat. Right. Um, and the transition happens now rather than on the road. Okay. So I've already experienced sort of like headaches and- Are you in, Would you say you've dropped into ketosis now then? Um, I'd probably say, so yeah, I'm, cross, in I'm and out feeling better on it now. Yeah. Um, I did get sort of quite a few headaches and was feeling like dreary and a bit hungover in the mornings and stuff. Um, and then also, yeah, I was just, you know, it, it, it's been nicer on the, the fat-based diet rather than, like, the carby, sugary stuff because it makes really, you feel awful. Really? Yeah. yeah. And now I'm coming out with the transition as well. It feels – feel a lot more energetic and sort of healthier, if that makes sense. I think that's – I mean, for a lot, of, a lot of
1: people who have had to suffer the pain of a fat and protein diet, that's, for most people, really uncomfortable. Mm. But they don't like the fact that they don't have that starch, that yeah. kind of bulky – satiated feeling that you get that comes along with having carbs Mm. Um, so that's the that's the diet side so in terms of training what have you been doing to prepare a lot of time on a Concept 2 I'm going to guess
0: yeah there is that I mean it doesn't really cross over that much to ocean rowing so really yeah so in a two hour set on a Concept 2 I can pull 30 kilometres which is a good (laughs) pace but then when I first got my boat I rode it from the Time Bridge to the Royal Keys which is eight miles and it took me two hours oh wow so the weight of the boat how slow she goes in the water and all that sort of stuff. Like mm-hmm. it makes it so much different to the concept two, but you're not going to do any damage being on a concept two, So mm-hmm. it's the nearest you can get to it without yeah. getting on the boat. So um, a lot of two hour sets, one hour sets uh, rode through the night one time did like 70 K in one sitting. Wow. Um, that was it at the gym across at timeside. Yeah. Uh, and then most of the time it's just sort of general prepared fitness with uh, Lauren so training most days together in the mornings and um, we're just doing like crossfity sort of stuff so uh-huh. yeah, a lot of functional movements and sort of
1: I thought I honestly thought there'd be a lot more role specific stuff I genuinely thought it would just be yeah I've just spent the last six months sat on a Concept 2 and I've mm. done some accessories work but it would appear that yeah. the crossover from doing more functional stuff actually appears to be more beneficial in preparation
0: yeah I think so looking at like that Talisker race that I keep like, going back to people take that pretty seriously uh-huh. And people train for it or have trained for it um, with this, like the thing you've just said there, like sat in the concept too yeah, most of the, the time, time. Yeah. and then doing a little bit of accessory stuff and it hasn't really worked as well really? as people that have come in recently with like a, an endurance sports background who have done more sort of functional training and then they've done a bit of... A little bit more too. well-rounded yeah. as athletes. Yeah. So I think... It's more like training for the Marines was, you're, like, you're sort of ready for anything, like you're a good sprinter, you're strong, you're gymnasty and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, it, th- that's definitely worked well and being as robust as you can possibly be. I suppose it must make the training as well,
1: building up to something that is going to be a bit monotonous. The fact that you can go in and one day do rope climbs and one day do pull-ups and one day do Concept 2 and that, do you yeah. know what I mean? Like it.
0: Yeah, well, my, my thought is to save the monotony for the actual, <laughs> the event itself. It sounds like, like it's going to be a little bit, yeah. Yeah, I'm happy that I could sit on a row for four, like 14 hours or whatever. I've done it before. Yeah. Um, I'm happy I can work out for 18 hours having yeah. done it before. Um, and like I said, the row is more mental than it is physical. Like it's going to be debilitating and hard work and all that sort of stuff. But I think like the overriding rule or mantra in my life is there's always someone worse off than yourself. Yeah. And it's, I think whatever situation you're in is not that bad, if you keep that in mind. So. I'm not sure
1: there's going to be very many people on the planet that are going to be doing as many hours per day no. as yourself during that period. Which, again, <laughs> yeah. yeah, is a crazy, a crazy thought when you think 7 billion people on the planet and you will be easily in the top 0.1% of people working out for three months.
0: Yeah. On the balance. No, it's <laughs> like, not. Well, there's a famous... Brad Wiggins explains the Tour de France... Yeah. By saying it's the only sporting event on the planet where you need a hair, haircut halfway through and i'll need like maybe <laughs> Actually, three or four yeah, you're gonna, have to, you're gonna yeah. have to do all sorts so um, but it's and also apart from the working outside of things like i have to be a carpenter an electrician um a water maker specialist um all these different things because yeah. if anything breaks on the boat there's no one to fix it but you, me. You'd, you'd said to me that one of the first things that you said about the race
1: was you need to be able to take apart and put back together every single element. Yeah, upside down and in the dark.
0: So wow, it's pretty. So nice.
1: talk us talk us through the vessel or the boat. Talk us through what. Yeah, time. so
0: she's 24 feet long. Um, there's a cabin at the front and at the back that are both enclosed and airtight. Right. Um, the one at the back is the one I sleep in. Um, so It's about. It's basically coffin dimensions. It's like six foot by two foot. Built for you pretty um, much. Built honestly, for me so. pretty much, yeah. yeah. And in, in in the cabin, I've got sort of food, a memory foam mattress and a sleeping bag. Okay. Um, and then I've got like the GPS, the radio, uh, the, a thing called AIS, which is like an indication system that tells me and other ships who each other are. Right. <laughs> so you get in touch and say, stay away from me. You're about to run over or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then the forward cabin at the front of the boat is where I'm going to have... It's mainly for storage. You can't really get in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just going to store things like the parachute anchor and all that sort of thing. Right. And then the deck itself has got two rowing positions and six oars. Um, Why? That's Why? it.
1: Why two rowing positions and just, six oars? Uh,
0: basically, so my boat can be rowed by one person or two people. Right. Um, and there was an opportunity to like condense the two positions into one just for the sake of I'm a solo rower, so I don't need to. Mm-hmm. But then we talked about with the project manager that when the um, as I get halfway through and I've eaten half of the food mm-hmm. and obviously half of the, the weight of the boat has disappeared. Yeah. Um, it would be nice to have the opportunity to either row more forward or more back of the boat so I can affect the boat's stability in the water. Yeah. Uh, cause ballast's like a big thing with those boats. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the reason we kept the two positions. And also just to break up him and up me a little bit. Yeah. I know it sounds weird, that they're only like a foot apart from each other, but if just spend one bit. day in the front and one day in the back. It might just be a little bit, bit different. Yeah. So I remember
1: one of the first questions that I asked you, and I'm sure that some of the listeners are thinking this as well. The guys, the boats that have two or three or four people in them, you would think would be able to get across quicker mm-hmm. than a boat that only has one person in them. Yeah. There's more people, more horsepower. Yeah. Right? But you said that that wasn't strictly the case. No, and it's been
0: proved in the last two Talisker races. So it's all like power to weight uh, ratio. So Mm -hmm. they can go faster, but they're carrying more weight and they're doing it in two hour sort of sessions. So if we were doing it as a pair, for example, like I'd be rowing while you're asleep Mm -hmm. and vice versa. But the pace is pretty much the same because our boat would, it would weigh what it would weigh for two people Mm -hmm. whereas my boat's only going to have 100 days worth of food instead of 200 days yeah so only one person yeah I've got to shift less weight so effectively I can keep the same sort of speed over a 24 hour period as we could do in two hour you know sort of segments yeah so in the last two Talisca races last year my friend Gavin Hennigan came third overall as a solo rower right beat teams of two and three and four wow and there's a guy Mark Slats who's doing it this year and he's third as a solo, as a solo right? in a team, you know, in a race full of fours and threes. And which is, which just seems so
1: counterintuitive, yeah. I suppose. But yeah. Yeah, when you've got the amount of food for that many more people mm. and, and all the rest of it, yeah. so I mean, that's just... And they're
0: rowing probably 20 hours a day, those two solo guys I just mentioned. 20 so hours a day? They're rowing about 20 hours a day, yeah. So what's the logic behind... Because obviously that's
1: going to cause, I guess, a little bit more burnout. You're going to be more yeah, huge tired burnout. the next day.
0: But I mean, Mark at the moment, they've been going two weeks. He doesn't seem to have... Slowed down any yet, wow. but obviously, you can't keep that up forever, so yeah, everyone's sort of on the of their and so it's going to stop, yeah. Um, so for me, for example, I'd, I'll, I'm just going to row and see how I feel and judge everything off, off that. Mm-hmm. There's no point in me making like a, a schedule now that I'm going to have to change when I get on the row, so I'm just going to sort of row for an hour or two and see how I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, if I feel like I should rest a little bit, I will and get some food down, I mean the water and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then if I feel like I want to carry on and do a, a big stint, and I will. So, in, for the rowing aficionados out there, have you got
1: an idea of sort of cadence and stroke rate and stuff like that?
2: Or yeah. Is-
0: so, as a very basic sort of measure, you'd be doing around eighteen to twenty strokes a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be honest with you, that's all that really counts for for, for the aficionados out there because mm-hmm. the boats, like I said before, if I do two hours on a Concept Two. And two hours on my boat, the distance is like halved, basically. <laughs> so um it was that was a big eye opener because obviously you spend the whole time looking at your little screen on the Concept Two and yeah. you're thinking, right, if I pull one thirty per five hundred, that's awesome, yeah, I'm doing really good. Yeah. And then if it's two, blah blah blah, and you're doing all this maths in your head, and then as soon as you get on the boat, it just all goes out, out the window. window. So it's just efficiencies um, guided by your stroke rate um and 18 to 20 is sustainable for 100 days and that feels about right for you as well yeah it feels nice and also because it's an ocean and not like a river boat. a, a lot of river rowers have talked to me about sort of how it feels now i'm training and all this sort of stuff and it's it's different again from those guys because they're generally racing on really flat sort of glass like mm-hmm. rivers or lakes yeah um and they don't have to deal with weather all that much yeah whereas i'm Constantly moving the oars very rarely go in the water super clean and come out super clean. So, you might put two oars in and one you know, you're catching crabs straight away, or yeah, the oar gets pulled out of your hands or pulled down onto your thighs or whatever. So, I think for a, lot, rough, a lot of people that will have seen
1: rowing on water before, it'll be Oxford Cambridge boat race stuff like that, mm. which is like glass. Yeah.
0: Like as flat as flat, flat yeah. as you can get. And guys displaying like amazing balance and the boat's super rigid and they don't move around at all. But... Yeah. And I've seen a video of one of
1: your friends recently, I think, it's out on the water at the moment. Yeah. And I saw a video that he'd uploaded from the cabin looking at him. Yeah. And it it just looks like hills. It just looks like a crazy golf course that's yeah. quite, that, that he's rowing over the top of behind. Yeah. Him.
0: It's nuts. So, for instance, the, to, like to describe the conditions, he recently woke up in his cabin with his eye sort of all blackened and cuts all over his face. Right. Because while he was asleep, he capsized. And it's like a washing machine inside the cabin most of the time. So. And it's, uh, you said it was sealed, right? So yeah. So he he's had... just battling around in this sort of coffin and um, woke up with his eye in sort of bad order. Oh, my God. Um, but he's, he's the guy I mentioned before, Damien, who's just sort of an example of how to tackle it. So he just sort of laughed it off, took it for what it was. And, and he's just cracking on. He's just cracked on, yeah. Wow. And then later that day, I think he was on the deck and it capsized again. Capsized twice in a day, right? Um, yeah. And he said he just sort of, you know, he's prepared for that because he'd heard of it before. So, wow. But he's he's like, he's how I'd sort of like to tackle it. Mm-hmm. And like, you, you look at him and it really sets you up well for, for what's coming because he doesn't like sugarcoat it and make out it's easier than it is. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, He's just honest, like he just says what it is. Not so sort of glorifying anything. Yeah. Anything. And he's not saying, Oh, it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life and all this sort of thing. You're gonna if you go into it thinking it's not gonna be the hardest thing you've ever done, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so I think as long as you're aware of how difficult it's gonna be, there's not gonna be that many nasty surprises. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I think the amount of people that get into this sort of thing, they're not gonna do it lightly. They've already gonna... filtered out an awful lot of people just
1: through the madness of saying that you're gonna do it, I think.
0: Yeah, I think yeah, that that video scenario I always explain in, in Fulham is a good a good like litmus test, I think, for the general No one, other, no one in the room even No thought one about wanted it, to yeah. even think about it. And I was just sat on my own thinking, Oh, that sounds it's going crazy. And right? I don't like I know I'm not normal, like I'm against the grain of what most people think is, you know, normal or whatever like that. But I just like I said before, I I find value in other things that some people don't mm-hmm. and I think that sort of You know, as much as people wanna progress in business and see how much money they can make and all that sort of stuff, that's admirable in its own world. Mm -hmm. But I'm not made of that sort of stuff. Like I wanna see what I can put up with and what I can achieve in other worlds. Mm -hmm. Um and it's just sort of how I'm bred, I suppose. And other people are bred differently. (laughs) Yeah. So going back to the race, so you've got yourself out of Portugal, hopefully you've
1: managed to pull yourself away, you said that you can't drift into things. So it's gonna be Finding your feet for the first week to ten days or so, yeah. and then what happens? Ten days in, where are we there?
0: Um, ten days in is hopefully set a rhythm. Um, I know what my scenario, uh, what my schedule on the boat is going to be more like. So maybe rowing three hours and resting for one hour, or rowing two, resting two. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know all the all the jobs on board that you're doing while you're not rowing, so mm-hmm. like cooking and cleaning and maintenance and all that sort of stuff. Um, hopefully on top of all of that by 10 days in um, and yeah and just sort of you know making good chunks into the, the distance mm-hmm. so the guys on the Talisca race for example they've been rowing for like two weeks now and they're still only halfway through right uh, no one actually has passed the halfway mark right um, so it's just that it's knowing every day day. it's breaking everything down into small chunks so if you can cover 60 miles in a day you're doing well as a solo mm-hmm. um So that's, you know, you break that target 60 miles down to 30 miles for every half day um, and just keep on going through it like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, hopefully by day 10, I'll be sort of, you know, a good chunk into the race, a couple of hundred miles down Mm -hmm. um, and just sort of not really looking at the miles to go Mm because that'd be a little bit disheartened 3,000 and odd miles. Um, And yeah, and then just enjoying the experience is the main thing for me. I think too many people come back from the race and they've treated the whole thing as a, you know, a pressurized race Mm -hmm. where they're they're not really appreciating where they are and what they're doing. Um there's a book I've read recently by a guy called John Fairfax who wrote solo in nineteen sixty nine. Right. So he did it basically like compared to me on the bones of his arse. Like he didn't have any kit. Um none of the electrical foot steering right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um and he had no food, he caught most of his food that he ate on the road. No way. Um, So all that sort of stuff, I've got like fishing rods and a spear gun and as much as possible I'll sort of try and enjoy the experience um, rather than just treating it as a sort of... You haven't got got a volleyball, have you? (laughs)
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) That's come up a few times. Yeah, the Wilson thing. Yeah. That would be quite cool. Uh, So one thing that I I didn't understand was how you secure yourself when you can't touch the floor of the ocean for sleeping so you don't drift away. Okay,
0: yeah. So you've got a thing called a para-anchor, which is like a 12-foot parachute. And it's set out on like a 100 meter line. Right. So you've got a big thick rope that you attach to the boat, and then you put the power anchor out so that the current, obviously, that's going underneath the boat, Mm -hmm. um, the power anchor harnesses that current Mm -hmm. and it keeps the nose of the boat basically into the the swell. Yeah. So that your position is held. Yes. Um, You won't gain much. Distance while you're under on, on a power anchor, mm-hmm. but ideally you're not going to lose much either. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also in bad weather, you can deploy the power anchor and it'll keep the front of the boat pointing into the the bad weather. Yeah. So that you're going sort of up and down rather than side to side for sure. Um, and it <laughs> it's meant to. Um, eliminate the possibility of capsize but it doesn't well your friends proven in yeah twice in 24 hours yeah so the fine. general rule of thumb is if you've got a boat that's say three meters wide yeah. if you get hit side on by a wave more than three meters you're gonna you're going turn over, over. Yeah. yeah and it's the atlantic ocean so most of the waves are sort of eight or nine meters so right okay if you, if you hit one side on you're going over wow so i think it's important as well for if anyone's thinking of doing it, is to Understand it's how many times you're gonna capsize rather than if you're gonna capsize and being comfortable with the fact that it's gonna happen. Wow. So yeah. So in terms of the route that you're
1: taking and you've you've spoken about the, the streams and the um the wind mm-hmm. that you're going to catch, am I right in saying what you said to me, that there's gonna be some times where you may be on the crest of a, a wave going in the right direction, so to speak, and you can kind of almost surf that a little yeah, bit definitely. the yeah. hole at the right pace to ride that yeah. down.
0: So in what normal people would consider bad weather, um, in certain situations for ocean rowing, it's it's really good for you because you'll get picked up by a wave as you're rowing. Yeah. And then the, the common thread is to ditch the oars, just let go of them, and they'll sit in the gates, and they're not going to go anywhere. And then you grab your hand steering uh, ropes, and yeah. you basically steer yourself down the wave, and you'll pick up maybe like between sort of six and ten knots. Right. Which isn't very fast... Walking from A to B, but surfing down a wave on a sort of free money, sort of yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you're flying along, and then anyone that understands surfing, obviously, waves come in sets, yep. so if you're doing that every sort of 10 to 12 seconds, you're making up some really, really good distance.
1: Uh-huh. So. so, a lot of this, I guess, a lot of the ease of the journey is going to be dependent on mother nature,
0: yeah, and also it depends on my for want of a better term, my balls, because. Yep. My friend Leven um, is doing weather routing for the t- like five teams that are on the Talisker race right now. Yeah. And I was at Leven's house the other night. And as we were speaking, he had to keep on dashing away to like phone people on the race and give them their weather options. Right. Um, and one of the teams he spoke to were on power anchor because the weather was bad. Yeah. In inverted commas. Um, so they were just going to sit there and ride it out. And then he spoke to a four man team, um, a group of boys from up here actually. Um, and they were they wanted more wind, they wanted more speed, so they were like surfing down the waves as we've just described there. So it's 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 understanding what bad weather is, because there's a fine line between free speed and putting yourself in the dangerous position. Yeah, for sure. Um, but it's, you know, it's understanding what bad weather is. Where do you think, bad, do you think that you rank
1: is. on the scale? Would you say that you're... Surfed? I'm pretty
0: happy, because I mean, at the risk of sounding too confident, I've worked on the Indian Ocean for sort of two or three years, mm-hmm. um, and you know witnessed some pretty bad weather yeah and that was when we were on sort of cargo and um, cargo carriers and tankers and oil rigs yeah and we were a little bit worried mm-hmm. so that was pretty bad weather so mm-hmm. if i experience anything like that then definitely it'll be like a case of battening down the hatches and you know surviving yeah um but i think in most scenarios it's going to be sort of harnessing what you've gotten and just making going it. Use of it yeah
1: yeah so I saw something online that you posted about a sheepskin seat cover. Yeah. And then someone asked why you had a sheepskin seat
0: cover. Yeah. And what are you wearing to row in? Uh, so, generally, I think 80% of the time people will row naked. Completely um, naked. Completely naked, yeah. So, the idea is that if you, you can probably test it at home if you've got that much time <laughs> in your hands, but if you say, dip it, if your t shirt gets covered in salt water yep. and then it dries out in the sun, mm-hmm. The water evaporates, but the salt crystals stay in the material Mm -hmm. and they're abrasive. So obviously if the T-shirt's rubbing on your skin, especially with rowing, you're going to end up like sores on your armpits. Really bad, really fast. Yeah. And because you're at sea, the salt gets into the wound and it makes it harder to heal. Mm -hmm. Um, And then obviously because you're debilitated and malnourished and all that sort of stuff, your body's slower at fixing itself anyway. It's a bad environment for healing. And that's going to happen anywhere you've got clothes on or anywhere where there's friction. Mm -hmm. Whereas the sheepskin, because it's soft and fluffy and it's like more of a natural fibre, mm-hmm. it, it's better at not retaining the salt crystals mm-hmm. than sort of man-made fibres are. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that you clean it out as often as you can with uh, fresh water mm-hmm. um, and then it's sitting on that naked is basically going to provide less friction than rowing in a pair of shorts. So if someone goes past you
1: on a boat, yeah, they're going to see
2: a this 110-kilo yeah. yeah. bearded a man is- rowing
1: yeah,
0: for the first part, it'll, you, you'd wear shorts for that reason. <laughs> yeah. But for the middle of the ocean, there's not many but people going to some, come someone,
1: someone on holiday, a family yeah. holiday in a yacht just coming around the corner exactly, of Portugal. Yeah. And
0: and, but I'll be in a position where I'm that tired, I don't really care who sees me or that's That's absolutely sleep, so. fine. So
1: in terms of avoiding sunburn and stuff like that, like even just like the volume of sun cream that you're going to have to take.
0: Yeah, so I use like these zinc stick things. Yep. Um, so I just stick that on. But I generally, through like... Uh, jobs I've done in the past I've spent a lot of time in the sun and exposed to it in sort of big chunks Yeah. Um, so I get used to it pretty quick mm-hmm. um, and like I said before uh, when I was in Tanzania for a few years um, it was you know something I put up with all the time there mm-hmm. so you get used to that pretty quick uh, but definitely for the first part I'll be covered up and you know after a hundred days in
1: sure the sunshine you're going to come back with a wicked tan as well yeah right? I'll be
0: quite leathery I think as well <laughs> <laughs>
1: Man. So fresh water as well, Like water is a very, very heavy yeah. object to take with you, how's that working? Have you got so, a, a, something that you can distill on, on board as well? Yeah,
0: so on board I've got a, um, a desalinator or a water maker uh, and basically it's plumbed into the boat so there's a valve underneath the hull, like the bottom of the boat mm-hmm. and it sucks up seawater and then through loads and loads of different filters at mega high pressure, it turns it from salt water into drinkable water. It mm-hmm. um, doesn't taste particularly great, but you it know, keeps, you, keeps you going when you need it. Yeah. Um, and then also because of the type of boat I have, it needs ballast mm-hmm. to sort of sit it down in the water and again, reduce the, the chance of uh, capsizing. Yeah. So the ballast is gonna come in the form of about 120 kilos of fresh water. Uh-huh um just in plastic bottles that you'd get from the shop sort of thing uh and then if the water maker breaks and my handheld water maker breaks as well yeah i've got emergency water so to last me sort of you know sufficient however time. long it could yeah. um and the idea with that would be if you drink any of the fresh water in the bottles you can just replace it with seawater and mark the bottle so you don't drink it yeah and that way you don't lose any ballast but uh, you're able to drink the emergency so water. so that's hydration what about food Food comes in the form of freeze-dried meals. Um, The sponsor that I've got, uh, Firepot, um, there's a company called Outdoor Food that make that brand. Mm -hmm. um, They basically cook their meals and then uh, dehydrate them. Right, okay. So they're way healthier than some of the other ones out there on the market so mm-hmm. I won't obviously mention their names but they're super sugary mm-hmm. um, so you're actually having fully cooked meals that just have yeah, had the water taken out yeah and then you just pour boiling water back in vacuum, um, vacuum packed foil bags or yeah, whatever it is yeah leave it for like 15 minutes and that's rehydrated and it's all like uh, chilli con carne and spag bol it's like the and,
1: ultimate cup of soup
0: yeah exactly yeah and they're, they're like a thousand calories each meal and stuff like that so, so how much are you going to be eating every day so I've got four of those every day um, as well as a snack pack and the snack pack's got about 3000 calories in it a snack um, pack with 3000 calories Yeah. So in. it's lots of like, I've got loads of uh, nut butter some biltong because apparently people say that you miss chewing because all the freeze dried foods like quite sloppy and soft yeah. so the biltong is just basically nice, for nice and chewing tough. Yeah. yeah and it's obviously like mega stack of protein um, and then i've got sort of Uh, energy gels that are Uh fat-based rather than sugary ones Uh Um, and then bat-load spas and flapjacks and stuff like that so So you're going to be eating sort of moderately well I suppose yeah I think I'm going to be hitting about 7,000 calories a day and then the argument is you burn about 10 so Uh, I'll be in a 3,000 calorie deficit every day so that's about a pound a day of weight yeah exactly not far off that that you'd
1: be losing so what if we say it's around about 100 days and 100 days from January 18th what's your weight going
0: to be? I think the, the, um, what do you call it? the vast majority of people that do it say they lose about a quarter of their body weight. So oh that's why I took the jump from 85 to 112. <laughs> I aimed at 115, I think, Yeah. Um, but I think I'm about 112 at the minute, so I'm mm-hmm. there or thereabouts. Yeah. Um, and then <laughs> hopefully I'll lose all that um, by the time I get well, to If the you, next if you come like, back in, you're at 120. I'll be really annoyed, yeah. <laughs>
1: Super annoying. <laughs> oh, I've, got to, I've got to go on a fucking cut now. That, <laughs> um, yeah, on the what? You've got to on that. You have, you six have got the tan, though. Yeah, have already yeah. got the tan. Um, so tell us about the rock to recovery, then, because the, the, everything you're yeah. doing here is based around a charity, right?
0: Yeah. So to get a bit candid, maybe a little bit sort of controversial. Um, I generally, you know, and a lot of other people um, want to bring to the fore how much. PTSD is ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people that come back from Afghan and Iraq and all that sort of stuff with injuries, physical injuries, are pretty well looked after now. Um, they don't get the, the best care that they could possibly wish for, but it's, it's pretty good. So if you lose a leg, for example, you're going to get a prosthetic and it's going to be of a, a very good sort of standard. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, the same can't be said for mental health. Um, if you come back with a brain injury or with post-traumatic stress or anything like that, you're just not well looked after at all. It isn't clear what avenues you should be going down to seek help. Um, it isn't clear what kind of signs and symptoms to look out for in people. Do you, so think, like, do you think that this is across US, UK? Yeah, it's like you, like the suicide rate for sort of veterans is sky high. And a lot of it is because of... You know, post trauma sort of incidents that they've experienced, or if they've, you know, been in high pressure situations for huge chunks of their lives, mm-hmm. which Afghan and Iraq provided, um, you basically leave the service and you don't have any um, transitionary sort of support. Mm-hmm. You're just, you know, one day you're flying around, jumping out helicopters and shooting people and stuff, and the next day you're in waitrose, getting annoyed at people. Oh, in the law. Yeah, getting in your way when you're trying to buy tomatoes or whatever. Oh. So it's a really hard thing to, come to terms with especially with the fact that there's no help out there um and rock to recovery is a charity that's sort of changing the face of that so they're providing help for veterans and the families um who have to deal with ptsd and sort of brain trauma injuries and stuff like that Um, and it's like a fast action charity as well so if anyone for example if you had a friend or a relative or whoever that was in the forces that you were worried about you could call rock to recovery and they'd literally fly up to see that friend or relative and no give way. them like immediate one to one support, like there and then. Good Samaritans, but for, yeah. for really yeah. serious. Yeah. And obviously, it costs a fortune. So raising money for a, a charity like that and trying to raise the uh, awareness of them as well is like really important. I mean, that,
1: so, I think I've I've got a friend, BT Urella, who started Vet Sports in America which Mm -hmm. is a a wounded and PTSD uh, supporting sports league so they play like baseball and a whole bunch of other stuff Mm. and um, he gave probably one of the most moving talks I've ever heard about a year and a half ago and he went through all of the different bits all of the problems that his friends have had with PTSD and he he said that he was one of the guys who'd come out physically injured quite badly Um, but given the choice between being physically injured and mentally injured, mm. he was glad that he was able to, that he'd lost a leg. That was was his analogy that he'd used. Yeah. Um, and I think it just sounds so alien, the concept of PTSD, and obviously being in that high-pressure situation, the level of adrenaline that they'll have experienced, that soldiers will have experienced in one day of combat, will be more than most people will experience in yeah. a lifetime.
0: And like not only that, even getting away from the trauma side of things, just looking at something as simple as, transitioning from one career to another mm-hmm. for most people it's quite stressful but for people like in the backgrounds that i've sort of encountered you go from this sort of high level like you know where the the level of octane and the adrenaline and all that sort of stuff that you're experiencing yeah. on a day-to-day basis um it goes from like 100 to zero yeah and you're expected just to deal with that mm-hmm. um and what you're used to and the people that like people around you their behavior that you used to that changes all of a sudden as well so you can't rely on people to you know treat you the same way or anything like that so you've got to you've got to transition your heads and like the way you act and everything you've ever known (laughs) completely change that without any support whatsoever yeah at least and like if you're joining the military um and you're you know you're doing that role reversed so you're going from a very sedentary lifestyle and all that sort of stuff and then joining the military they take almost a year to train you up to a standard that they can then send you to war. Mm-hmm. And then when you come back from war and you want to go back into like civil Street, mm-hmm. you're just sent there. You don't get so any they, transitionary support. They diet you so. down, but they don't reverse yeah, diet you back up. So exactly. So like that has a massive effect on how people act, on their reactions to things, like how they process stuff in the heads. Um, and there needs to be help for that. There's like, at the moment, there's no prosthetics for the mind but if people lose legs or lose arms or something they can get those limbs replaced they're yeah. obviously nowhere near as good as having your original leg or whatever <laughs> but there's, like I said there's no prosthetic for the mind so the, the more help that people can provide by using these charities like Rock to Recovery and you know ones like it it's, it's super important to get to a point where people aren't Running out of options, mm-hmm. and they're arriving at the door of suicide. Mm-hmm. People are losing their families and loved ones, sort of thing. So, so that's the, the goal
1: is to raise as much money as possible. Where are you up to?
0: Yeah, so we've I've raised about five grand for them so far. Yep. Um, the bulk of the money that's going to come from the, the row itself will be a while I'm away. Mm-hmm. Um, I've experienced in the build up to the event itself that you're taken far more seriously when you sort of you know you tell people you're going to do it. And then that sort of dies off a bit then you buy a boat mm-hmm. and that like think makes people think "Jeez, is actually going to go through with this he yeah. bought a boat um Fucking and then all Mad the training actually, and all that yeah. sort of stuff yeah um so i think as soon as i set off then that'll be a big thing yeah um and then also one of the founders of the the charity uh foxy um he's on tv quite a bit with the ses program uh-huh. on channel four um and then he's got another program coming out about uh, drug cartels and stuff like that in Venezuela so he's going to you're not
1: not, going to meet him at one of them are you when you're over there no yeah (laughs) yeah well he gave
0: me a load of uh, heads up about what Venezuela is like at the moment because it's basically a failed state pretty lawless yeah Yeah. so getting there is going to be interesting yeah you might just jump back in the
1: boat and turn around right Mm. give me some give me some Mm. more food and I'm going back
0: yeah but he's he's basically going to help sort of um, you know spread the message and all that sort of stuff and yeah I think like I said when I'm actually out on the road That's when the sort of the money will come trickling in. Then Um, the BBC are going to do an interview on the fifth of January, um, and then one of the main sponsors is making a a documentary. So I think in terms of raising money, there's about sort of the next six months is going to be the big big deal, the big the big push. Yeah, yeah. So
1: in terms of you've got to recovery on there, I know that you've got. My protein as well. Who else have you got on there? That are this sort of yeah. Kind of thing? So
0: the the two main sponsors are True Potential. Yeah. Um, they're an investment firm based in New Bern, so they're a northeast based company. Uh-huh. Uh, and then the other one is Airfare, um, and they're basically a flight claim <laughs> flight delay compensation company. Uh-huh. Um, both owned by friends of mine, <laughs> uh, and they're both northeast based sort of companies as well. So, so you're
1: so taking a, a good sort of local base. Yeah. There,
0: so know. that's like that's an important thing for me. I wanted to get sort of people in the local area involved in it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a story in the Chronicle and all that sort of stuff. And then, like I said before, BBC Look North are going to come do a, a feature on it. So, Have you
1: found it difficult? Because you've said that you're a little bit averse to kind of putting yourself on a pedestal and, and uh, searching the accolade that's a little bit more extrinsic and stuff yeah. like that. Have you found it uncomfortable to have to be the Instagram story guy, the, the constant update guy? Because obviously, yeah. as you've said, when you, when you publicise these milestones in the build-up to it, and presumably throughout as well... When you do those, you're kind of battling against two things there. One of them is it'll raise more money for the charity and generally yeah. notoriety about the race is good. But on the flip side of that, you're maybe doing something that naturally you wouldn't have a preclusion to do. do yeah.
0: Um, it's really, I, I did a blog post about it recently because it's sort of, you know, it's one of those things I, I don't berate anybody that does it and that builds their profile and all that sort of stuff because generally they're doing it for good reasons. Um, And I do understand that the more people I tell about The Row, the more exposure the charity gets and the more money that we raise and all that sort of stuff. But also, at the same time, I've chose to do The Row solo for a reason. Like, I like my own company. I like my own space. And I like being able to do things without any sort of fuss and stuff like that. And I also strongly feel that in terms of, like, raising money before The Row and telling people what's going to happen before The Row, to me, it's sort of... It's not important until I've completed the task. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to say you're going to do it, but actions are remembered long after words are forgotten. Mm-hmm. So, actually completing the challenge and coming back and having the story for me is way better than going around telling everyone you're going to do it. Yeah, there's obviously seven years worth of me preparing for an Atlantic Row has seen me see like you know, seven years worth of other people preparing, yeah, and the amount of people that put it off for a year or don't actually follow through with it or set all these big promises and failed. Yeah, It's crazy. So I don't want to put myself in that position where I'm telling everyone I'm going to smash it and I'm going to do this and I'm going to be this guy and I'm going to raise this much money and all that sort of stuff before it's actually done. Uh-huh. Um, I think I'm in a better position to talk about it and raise the profile once I've actually achieved the, the milestone Yeah. Um, than to talk about it before it happens. Yeah. But it's just, it's one of those things, it's the world we live in it requires that sort of excitement and beat up and big hoopla that social media is now. Yeah. Um, And I hope I've done an all right job of it so far, but I could always obviously use like more shares and follows and all that sort of stuff. So So, while that you're on the road, if
1: people want to keep up to date with what you're doing, is there going to be, have you got access to Twitter? Have you got access to, how can people keep up?
0: There's a thing called a a yellow brick tracker um, that people will be able to download the app for that and follow me on like a Google Maps sort of image, uh, like a Google Earth image. And there'll be a little like arrow, which will be me making like a really slow progress across the thing. Um, And then also I can Facebook and tweet using that device as well uh-huh. um, I can send photos and stuff and perhaps the odd video I was going to say because the guy yeah. who tumbled over he had would like look
1: like a GoPro sort of thing that
0: was yeah. attached to the front yeah so uh, there, there is a capability these days for that that sort of stuff uh-huh. um but it's just, it's very sketchy with satellite comms if anyone's ever had experience with that stuff. It's hard to get the videos up and out. Well, when you can't get
1: 3G in the middle of... Exactly, yeah. City centre, yeah. yeah, trying to get a video <laughs> up in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Um,
0: but it should be good. I think it's one of those things that you sort of, you start sending on Tuesday morning and it actually goes up on Friday afternoon. So yeah, I got it. will be like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there'll, there'll be a blog every day and all that sort of stuff. And then Lauren's going to... Control the social media stuff and do All right, yeah. like, updates and stuff like that for uh, me.
1: So well, you're gonna have to be careful, especially if you're rowing naked, of just what footage know, just yeah. does end up going up. Yeah, <laughs> be interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, so sort of drawing everything to a close, where can where can we find more information about the row over the next? the next few weeks and then once once everything's up and running where can yeah. keep up to date um, with the story if
0: everybody goes and checks out Rock to Recovery UK on Facebook and Instagram it's just at Rock to Recovery UK mm-hmm. um, and it's a number two not TO so uh, go look on that or if you go to any of the platforms and put in Atlantic Solo Stew so Twitter Facebook or Instagram mm-hmm. um, and there'll be links there towards the fundraising pages and Rock to Recovery and mm-hmm. um, and then basically, like I said, I'll, I'll release like a, a page that people can follow while I'm on the road, yeah. like a week before I leave, um, so that I'll have the tracking information and everything on there. Um, and yeah, so that'll be the, the best way to follow it. Fantastic, man. Well,
1: thank you very much for coming on. I'll make sure that all of the links to everything that you've put in here, to Rock to Recovery, to the links to follow yourself, will be in the description. Um, good luck, man. That's <laughs> yeah. all I can say. Thanks for
0: having me. Really you. appreciate for having me. Yeah. Cheers, good fun. man. Thank you. Cheers, man. Cheers.
2: Bye-bye i um.